Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Strikes reported near hospitals in northern Gaza. Correspondent Jamana Karachi on the fears of patients and medics. Then out of the spotlight but grinding on, Russia's war on Ukraine. I'll speak to Sasha Dovjik, editor of London Ukrainian Review. And ahead, jailed Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi ends her hunger strike, but her struggle continues. CEO of Pan America, Suzanne Nossel, joins me. Plus, breaking through my life in science. Hari Srinivasan speaks to Nobel Prize winner Katalin Karako about her new memoir and groundbreaking research into mRNA technology. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. A never-ending humanitarian nightmare. That's how the U.N. Secretary General describes the current situation in Gaza, as tens of thousands of people flee south. The IDF today allowed another evacuation corridor for six hours and agreed to continue daily pauses in areas of northern Gaza, according to the White House. Even the U.S., Israel's staunchest ally, denounced the civilian death toll. Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying, quote, far too many Palestinians have been killed. Hospitals are again the focus of concern as fighting intensifies. Strikes were reported in the vicinity of several in northern Gaza, and the director of a medical center said the facility was completely surrounded by tanks. Israel's military has not commented on the strikes, but accuses Hamas of embedding itself in civilian infrastructure. Correspondent Jamana Karachi has this report, and a warning. It contains video that is difficult and disturbing to watch. Night 34 of this war brought hell to Gaza's hospitals. Death so close for these medics outside Al Auda Hospital, they recited their final prayers. The hospital says several were injured in these strikes and two ambulances were completely damaged. It was one of several hospitals struck in what was a night of horror for those sheltering at medical facilities in northern Gaza. And on Friday, more heartache came with these devastating scenes at a Shifa hospital complex. The haunting screams of those who survived this blast, dazed, confused, searching for loved ones amongst the dead and injured. Images that infuriated humanitarians like Norwegian Dr. Mads Gilbert, who volunteered at a Shifa in the past. President Biden, Mr. Blinken, Mr. Blinken, can you hear me? Prime ministers and presidents of the European countries, can you hear me? Can you hear the screams from Shifa Hospital, from al Hospital? Can you hear the screams from innocent people, refugees, sheltering, trying to find a safe place, being bombed by the Israeli attack forces, hospitals that are the temples of humanity and protection? But this is a war with no red lines, and hospitals are no sanctuary for the tens of thousands crammed into these hospitals, desperate to be protected from a war like no other Gaza has ever seen. 
For weeks, the Israeli military has been calling on civilians to move south, to get out of harm's way, they say. But so many have been reluctant to heed these calls. Airstrikes and death have followed Gazans to the south. Nowhere is safe in this besieged territory. But as the Israeli military opened up a humanitarian corridor amid intense fighting in the north, tens of thousands had no choice but to run. In scenes that evoke dark memories for Palestinians of an exodus from decades past, one from which there has been no return. But not everyone can leave. The fighting has trapped some of the most vulnerable at two pediatric hospitals where hundreds are sheltering and doctors are calling on the ICRC to evacuate them. Israeli troops are right outside Al-Nasr and Rantisi hospitals. The hospital is surrounded by Israeli tanks from all directions, this young woman says. We are asked to evacuate now. She and others with this cry for international protection and a safe passage out. Back inside a Shifa, there's no stopping, no pauses for those on a mission to save lives. A father anxiously looks to doctors for good news, only to be told his little boy is gone. Never have Gazans felt so abandoned, alone in this land of death and despair. Jamana Karachi reporting there. We thank her for that. Well, reporter Nada Bashir joins us from Jerusalem. And Nada, there are no words when you see a father in anguish like that crying over news that his son has died. What more are we learning about the aftermath of these strikes on the hospitals? Well, as you saw there, Biana, in Jamana's reporting, the videos, the testimonies that are emerging from the El Shifa hospital are horrifying to say the least. Once again, we are hearing testimonies of civilians being impacted in this latest strike. Eyewitnesses accusing the Israel Defense Forces of carrying out an airstrike on the vicinity of this hospital on the outpatient clinic. No comment just yet from the IDF on that strike. But as you saw there, this is really something that the doctors, the medics, the humanitarians on the ground have been warning about for weeks now as we have seen airstrikes edging closer and closer to Gaza's hospitals. El Shifa is the largest in Gaza and it's not just patients, it's not just healthcare workers in the hospital that are impacted but of course the hundreds of civilians who have taken to hospitals like El Shifa, thousands rather, taking shelter around these hospitals hoping that these hospitals will remain a safe haven, a sanctuary amid these relentless airstrikes and yet what we are seeing day after day is these airstrikes or strikes rather edging uh, closer to these hospitals that are at the brink of collapse, as we have heard uh, from humanitarians on the ground. We have heard in the last hour or so from the UN's uh, relief chief, Martin Griffiths. He's spoken uh, about the situation at El Shifa. I'll just read you a quick bit from his statement saying, horrific reports of attacks on El Shifa hospital coming out of Gaza today. The lives of thousands of patients, staff and displaced civilians are at risk under international humanitarian law. Hospitals must be protected. Acts of war in places of grace must stop. Indeed, they must never happen. We have heard from the International Committee of the Red Cross issuing a statement as well on the situation facing Gaza's hospitals, saying that they are overstretched, the situation is not safe, they are uh, breaching the point of no return. And as we know, the vast majority of Gaza's hospitals are now 
out of service at Al Shifa. Several operating rooms have already been closed. And as we know, there have been strikes around other hospitals as well. As you saw in Jamana's reporting, the Al Aouda hospital among them, at least 10 injured there. We have heard, of course, from a children's hospital in Gaza. The medical officials there saying that they have been surrounded now as ground fighting continues. They have appealed to the Red Cross to facilitate the evacuation of patients and civilians uh, from this hospital. But as we know, as these airstrikes continue in the north, while there have been these uh, pauses, humanitarian pauses established, it is very difficult for many people to evacuate from northern Gaza, southwards, particularly the elderly, particularly hospital patients who are not, are not able to leave these hospitals. And of course, as we know, these airstrikes have continued in central Gaza, Gaza and southern Gaza. And while the IDF says it is targeting Hamas targets, as we have seen repeatedly over four weeks now, more than four weeks now, civilian areas are indeed still coming under attack, including UN-run schools, including refugee camps, including hospitals and medical facilities. And as we've heard those warnings uh, from the UN's humanitarian chief uh, today, there is, it seems, nowhere safe for civilians in Gaza to turn. Yeah, and the IDF has um, been saying that Hamas has throughout all of this embedded itself in hospitals, though we should note the IDF has not responded to requests for news to these specific attacks, uh, most recent strikes on these hospitals. Not at, while I have you, uh, we heard some of the harshest words from the U.S. Uh, not calling for a ceasefire, but Secretary of State Blinken saying that far too many Palestinians have been killed, Palestinian civilians. How is that being received in Israel? Well, yes, we have heard those uh, strong words from Secretary Blinken, far too many Palestinians killed. He said far too many Palestinians have suffered in the last, uh, t last few weeks, according to Secretary Blinken. There certainly is a, a subtle shift in uh, U.S. position, though it is important to, the, to note that the U.S. still has expressed its steadfast support and solidarity uh, with the Israeli government, with the Israeli people. But what we are seeing is a shift. President, uh, Secretary Blinken saying today uh, that more can and should be done to minimize civilian deaths, to protect uh, civilian lives, that there are ongoing discussions between the U.S. and counterparts in Israel on concrete steps that can be taken to ensure that civilian deaths are minimized but also to ensure that humanitarian assistance is able to get in as well. And we've heard uh, commitments from the U.S. now with regards to the situation in Gaza, with regards uh, to the potential for a post-conflict uh, governance in Gaza. We've heard, of course, earlier in the week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other Israeli officials indicating, signaling that Israel would seek to establish uh, overall security responsibility over Gaza uh, once the war is over. And of course, that has been characterized by the US uh, earlier in the week as a mistake. Uh, Secretary Blinken today reiterating the US's commitment uh, to not only the uh, against the displacement of Palestinians from their land, but also reiterating the US's commitment for Palestinian governance, unified Palestinian governance in the future over both Gaza and the West Bank. Yeah, unified under the leadership of the Palestinian Authority is where the U.S. stands right now. Um, Nada Bashir, thank you so much. Live for us from Jerusalem.
Well, this week, hundreds of foreign nationals escaped Gaza into Egypt, among them nearly 100 Ukrainians, according to President Zelensky, fleeing yet another war. But as the world's attention remains firmly on the Middle East, the conflict in Ukraine grinds on. President Zelensky appeared on U.S. television on Sunday to try and keep his country's fight in the mind of American people. I think that the next year with the challenges, because this is the year of your elections, uh, now again we see the uh, critical situation in the Middle East. So I think uh, the, your help is very important for the next year. And that is crucial. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited-edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Our next guest says Ukrainians shouldn't have to compete for the world's attention. Sasha Dovzik is the editor of the London Ukrainian Review, and she is joining me now live. Sasha, welcome to the program. As we noted, you're a Ukrainian writer and you spend uh, a lot of time in London, but you are planning to move back to Ukraine at the end of the year. Uh, you were just there in Kiev, in Lviv. Tell us what you're seeing there, um, since it's right to point out so much of the world's attention has shifted to the Middle East. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I indeed was in Ukraine just at the end of October, and what I saw there was basically what I have been seeing through the entirety of Russia's full-scale invasion. Incredible defiance, incredible resistance of the Ukrainian people. Um, almost all my classmates are on the front now, uh, and half of them have already been wounded. Um, they recovered and they returned to the front lines to fight against Russia's genocidal onslaught on Ukraine. Ukrainian civilians continue helping in whatever way they can, uh, be it weaving camouflage nets for the army, uh, donating to support their defenders, or keeping their story in the spotlight of international news. Um, all of these efforts are absolutely um, inevitable in our case because uh, we are fighting an existential war, which means we do not have a choice not to fight. Um, if we stop fighting, there will be no more us. So it's 
quite easy to continue in our case if we can if you if we want to continue to exist and that's led you to write a, a very compelling piece in the new york times i want to read some of it for our viewers you write for 20 months i have been churning out essays on why the world should stay focused on ukraine i have written them in a bomb shelter in lviv in a train packed with refugees in poland i refuse to compete for attention Obviously, what happened on October 7th in, in Israel shocked the world, and the subsequent war has continued to shock. Are you surprised, though, that there isn't enough space to cover two very significant wars? Um, I'm not surprised we are at a critical point in our history, perhaps in this century. Um, we have not experienced um, international crisis at such a scale. So uh, perhaps it is inevitable that uh, we sometimes feel confused or tired. Um, but uh, I think it is very important uh, for us to keep our focus sharp. Because if we lose um, our focus, it means that we lose on all fronts. If we allow Ukraine to slide down the scale of our attention. It means that we are letting down the people who represent a democracy. There is uh, no doubt anywhere in the world that Ukraine is a democracy. Um, we're letting them down. We uh, show the world that democracies are not our priority. And we send a clear signal to authoritarians around the world that democracies can be attacked. It means that by staying with Ukraine, and keeping our attention on Ukraine, although there are other horrible conflicts exploding around the world. Um, it means that we will make the world a safer place if we continue supporting the people who are resisting a truly atrocious genocidal onslaught coming from an authoritarian regime. We see President Zelensky really uh, having a pulse on the current environment right now in the U.S., but around the world, obviously, with so much attention on the Middle East. But let's be honest, even before October 7th, there had been some frustration in the U.S., specifically amongst the Republican Party, about continued support for Ukraine and this war and how long that could go on. We very well may see a government shutdown next week because President Biden is asking for funding for both the war in Ukraine and helping Israel. And Republicans at this point seem to only be agreeing on the Israel aspect of this. Explain to our viewers how this is being received in Ukraine and the impact it may be having on troop morale overall. Yes, of course. Uh, we are incredibly grateful for the support that we are receiving. And we rely on this continued support to continue our fight. Um, Winter is coming in Ukraine. Uh, it means that Russia will uh, again try to attack Ukrainian energy infrastructure. Um, and we must boost our air defense in order for Ukrainian civilians not to suffer the scale of blackouts that they suffered um, the last year. Um, we are indeed uh, truly appreciative of the support that we are receiving from the US. But we also understand that we are the ones who are actually fighting this war on the ground. We are the ones who are sacrificing um, our health, our lives, 
um, and basically the time that could be invested into uh, building our culture, um, developing our infrastructure, uh, protecting our environment. We are losing this time to the battle against Russia's invasion, which threatens not only us, it threatens um, other countries in the European Union. We know very well that uh, Russian TV propagandists uh, threaten not only Ukraine, but also Poland, the Baltic states, Finland, Sweden, all the allies of the US in Europe. And Ukraine, by fighting alone, um, in terms of, you know, bodies, our physical presence on the ground, is uh, actually putting a shield in front of uh, the allies of the US in Europe. And by this, we are making the continent a safer place. If we receive the support that we need to defend and ourselves and to win this war, we will send a clear signal to uh, everyone around the globe who is now watching this war in Ukraine uh, that democracies uh, will be supported and that uh, further international conflicts are not worth pursuing. Ukraine's top war general um, raised some eyebrows when he made news in an interview a couple of weeks ago describing this war as being at a stalemate, essentially. Uh, President Zelensky uh, disputed that. But is that the sense among Ukrainians? And if so, is there concern that there may be more pressure from the West to go to the negotiating table? Mm -hmm. um, it is a hard wolf to fight for us. Uh, we've been uh, pursuing uh, what is called a counteroffensive uh, to liberate our territories, which are currently occupied by Russia, without basically air support. This is not what a NATO country would be asked to do. This is not what is expected of our allies in the West. Uh, we basically persevered because we do not have another choice. Uh, there are people in the territories occupied by Russia who are suffering from the occupation regime. And when we liberate our territories, as we've done, uh, I, would, I would like to remind us that Ukraine has actually liberated more than a half of the territories that Russia occupied since the start of the full-scale invasion. When we liberate those territories, we face what um, actually cannot be forgotten. We face the mass graves of our fellow citizens. I am um, among those who stood in front of a mass grave in the forest of Izum in the Kharkiv region where a fellow writer was buried, Volodymyr um, Vokolinko was his name. Um, and uh, after this, you understand that you do not have a choice. You must liberate all the territories. And this is the only peace guarantee that exists for Ukrainians. Uh, we understand that unless Russia is pushed back to its uh, actual internationally recognized borders, we will not have peace in Ukraine. Any ceasefire at the moment will be used by Russia to rearm and attack Ukraine. Because uh, basically for them it is also an existential fight. The existence of our democracy and our fight for freedom uh, is an existential threat to Russia's authoritarian regime. So if we succeed, Russia will also experience um, an internal crisis which will definitely push um, Russians to reconsider uh, their current uh, order. 
EU membership has also seen once upon a time as a red line for Vladimir Putin. Obviously, the, the ultimate goal, aside from winning this war for Ukraine, is joining NATO, but also joining the EU. And this week, uh, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said that Ukraine is ready for EU membership talks. That led to President Zelensky responding in a post uh, on X um, that it was a strong and historic step. How significant and how important would EU membership be at this moment for Ukrainians? It was such a fantastic and welcome news for all of us. Um, a, decade, a, a decade ago, 10 years ago, in November 2013, um, a revolution in Ukraine was started when um, our then uh, corrupt president, Viktor Yanukovych, uh, chose to turn away from his country's and his people's European aspirations and align with Moscow. Uh, Ukrainians went out to the streets and protested. Uh, this turned into a three-month-long revolution, as a result of which Yanukovych was ousted, and um, we actually succeeded in toppling the regime that tried to dissuade our European hopes and aspirations. Um, the success of Ukrainian democratic revolution was not um, actually uh, met with any optimism in the Kremlin and what followed was the uh, invasion of Ukraine and uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. Yeah. Uh, I would like to say that uh, these days uh, we see that the path towards European Union was not an easy one for us. But we are succeeding, and this victory for us means that we can also win on the battlefield, just because we we persevere, um, and just because we don't have other choice. This is the choice that has been made a decade ago, and we are still on this path, and we believe that um, we will emerge from the current terrible, terrible uh, situation victorious. Sasha Dovzik um, reminding us that this is a war that we cannot lose sight of and cannot stop covering. Uh, thank you so much for your time and dedication. And please do keep us posted in the months to come, especially as you do move back to Ukraine. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, next month, the Nobel Peace Prize will be awarded to someone who cannot be present to accept it. Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi has spent most of the past two decades behind bars, currently serving a 10-year sentence in Iran's notorious Evin prison, accused of actions against national security and propaganda against the state. This week, she went on hunger strike for three days over what she said was the jail's refusal to provide her with medical treatment. Her struggle is a reminder of the dire state of freedom of expression in Iran right now. Pen America is a staunch supporter of Mohammadi, awarding her this year's Pen Barbie Freedom to Write Award. And CEO of Pen America, Suzanne Nossel, joins me now from New York. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. So we do have news uh, that Nargis has ended her hunger strike after she has been treated now in a hospital uh, without having to be forced to wear a mandatory hijab. What more can you tell us about her current condition? Yes, well, we're very gratified that she was taken to a hospital. She was treated. She stood up for herself. Look, she went on this hunger strike because she needed medical treatment. She has a heart condition that she's had for some time. And she was insistent that she was not going to put on a hijab for this trip to the hospital. And she was on hunger strike demanding to receive 
medical attention. It was a standoff. And then the Iranian authorities, from what we can tell, gave in. And they let her go to the hospital. They said that the transfer to the hospital was conducted properly within all the appropriate regulations. And yet we've heard from her and her associates she did not wear the hijab. And so, you know, her point was if that was considered proper and in compliance with all the requisite authorities, if I didn't have to wear a hijab, no one should have to wear a hijab. And so she used this moment to press her point as an activist and an advocate, not just for herself, but for all Iranian women in this campaign to shake off the hijab, certainly not have it be compulsory, and to win their freedom. And so it's kind of a yet another inspiring example of the courage that she's shown, even under the most difficult conditions, in prison and an urgent need for medical treatment. Listen, there are heroes and there are women like Nargis, uh, who no one could, could imagine the sacrifice she has made to stay true to her convictions. Uh, we have covered her extensively at CNN, especially Christiana on this show has covered her plight there. But tell us more about her, uh, her writing, and why Penn ha has really stood next to her and stood with her in support throughout this journey. Yeah, she's just an extraordinary voice. She's spent the better part of the last decade in prison. She has two teenage children that she hasn't seen in more than nine years. The, the, her husband, Tahi, when he came to receive the award on her behalf, because of course she was in prison, she, it had to be conferred to her in absentia, he talked about his children never having had a time where they had both parents living together. Uh, one or the other had been in prison their entire lives. So to cast aside your family life, your loved ones, in service of freedom for other women, human rights in Iran, is just extraordinary. And she's also been a remarkable documenter of you know, just what exactly it is that happens in this regime. She put out a book about the experience of Iranian women enduring solitary confinement and did interviews with 12 women. This is like on a brief prison furlough, manages to do uh, interviews with 12 women who had endured solitary confinement in an Iranian prison and to tell their stories and make the case, she called it white torture, that solitary confinement is a form of torture and actually advanced the ball internationally in terms of recognizing the ramifications of solitary confinement all over the world and that it really needs to be acknowledged as a form of torture. So she's just relentless and you can see how she uses every single moment of her life to wage this struggle. And I think over the last year, with the uprising of women after the killing of uh, Masa Amini in Iran, it's, it's been an inspiration to so many young women who've taken to the streets, to their schoolyards, casting off their hijabs, challenging the regime with just enormous courage and in the face of really terrifying repression. Yeah. And despite this courageous movement that we see just images of from last year, things have not gotten much better for women in, in the country. In fact, they just passed a law in September, a stricter hijab bill targeting those who mock a dress code. H have you been able to crack either through Nargis's writing or, or from others? What is it specifically that this regime fears women so much for? You know, I think it is a very deep-seated recognition that, uh, you know, women are the heart and the soul of 
families and of society and that they have this craving for freedom. We see so many powerful Iranian women. You know, Nargis is in the tradition of Shireen Abadi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize 20 years ago. Uh, women like Nasreen Sudadeh, a lawyer who's been at the forefront of the movement for human rights, defending dissidents. And so it's, the women just have this will of steel. And it seems to be something that the Iranian regime sees as particularly threatening. And that's why they're so repressive. It's not just the hijab. It's a full dress code that women are subject to, and it really a form of subjugation. I think there's a deep fear that if women sort of had their way and had their full voice and role in society, that there's no way that this authoritarian regime could survive. And we see many of these women being the most potent figures in Iranian society, those who've captured international attention, who have sparked mass movements. And so that there is a power there that the regime clearly fears. And this regime would like the world to focus less on what's happening within its own borders and more on what's happening in the region, specifically the Israel-Gaza war. Uh, there is a lot of speculation about what, if any, role Iran may have directly or indirectly that led up to the October 7th attack. And as you know, there has been a lot of heated rhetoric that has been generated from this war, very polarizing, um, differing views, uh, and, and very strong statements that have been coming out from organizations like yours. Penn issued two, we should note, one on October 10th that read, Penn America deplores vicious attack against Israeli civilians. Another one you issued on October 17th titled, Palestinian people and culture under threat from Israel's retaliatory attacks. Um, that has subsequently led to a lot of internal pushback, I know, from, from people who are part of the organization and even on your board. How have you responded to that, and have you questioned wh why you would even issue statements, given how heated this specific issue is? Yeah, look, it's a tough moment for so many institutions. We are a big tent organization. We encompass thousands of writers from kind of every part of the political spectrum. That's the very purpose and essence of Penn, is bringing writers together, and the idea that if you can use writing and literature as a bridge across divides, as a catalyst to be able to see into a different future, that there's a kind of untapped power there that we try to unleash. And so something that's divisive in society is going to be divisive for an organization like ours, as it is for so many corporations and universities. We do work on the Middle East. We've worked on behalf of Palestinian writers who have been imprisoned for their words, a, a poet uh, whose case we took up for many years. And so we, are, uh, we see ourselves as kind of having a stake in this. We've done a lot of work on what's happening on college campuses. We have a lot of thinking and guidance that we've developed over years about how to keep the college campus a place that's open to both all people, no matter the race, nationality, religion, and all ideas, no matter what you think about the Israel-Hamas conflict, that you've got to be able to have a place and a but voice you know, on campus. You have to agree what we're seeing on college campuses is not working. It doesn't appear to be just healthy freedom of speech among academics and students. There are students on one side who, who feel threatened. There are students on the other side saying that they have a right to express freedom of speech. Uh, why has this turned into such a, um, a negative example of the use of freedom of speech? Because many say, you know what, this has turned into a potential, you know, 
hate crimes at, at times and hate speech. Where do you draw the line and what can universities learn from this example? Yeah, sure. Look, there are lines. The First Amendment doesn't protect all speech. It doesn't protect threats. It doesn't protect harassment. It doesn't protect incitement of in, imminent, into imminent violence. It doesn't protect violent acts. And so those lines have to be maintained in police. And we've seen conduct over the last few weeks that crosses some of those lines. On the other hand, we've seen boisterous protests that may be a little bit intimidating, forceful, it may feel hateful, and yet that speech most of the time, if it doesn't cross those lines, is protective. If it's a public university, they can't ban or punish that speech. So we've been giving guidance to university leaders, to faculties about how to navigate those boundaries, how to stand up for students who feel threatened, how to show solidarity when students feel victimized, how to create space for actual give and take and dialogue that is not just two parties trying to shut one another down. I think what we've seen, Bianca, is that there is a crisis in terms of civic discourse on our campuses. Our campuses really are the incubators for a democratic citizenry. This is, for most kids, the first place where they're encountering people from vastly different backgrounds, religions, nationalities uh, from all over the world. And, you know, I think there was a notion that just by putting kids together and making the campus more diverse, we would bring about a pluralistic society and learn how to live together. And we're seeing it takes a lot more work than that, that this has to be a much more intentional, deliberate effort on campuses to educate kids about free speech, to help faculty maintain an environment of open discourse in the classroom, to ensure that policies are enforced and when protests cross over the line and they're shutting down a classroom discussion, uh, you know, that that may, must, may go too far, that you have to be viewpoint neutral, that you can't police speech uh, in, in, pro-Israel more than you do that it, which is pro-Palestine, that people have to be treated equally. And so there's a lot we can learn from this moment, and I hope it does become kind of a watershed. It, it feels like a crisis right now, but I think there's a sense of possibility that it's opening people's eyes to what else needs to be done to keep our campuses free and open to everyone and to the broadest range of ideas. Yeah, because as you know, right now, there is a real sense of vulnerability. There's a, a fear of anti-Semitism. There's a, a fear, you know, as we covered, the rise in Islamophobia as well. And, and there just seems to be no no end to this in sight and solutions, which it seems like what your organization is doing in helping to provide these universities with some solutions on a pathway forward. Um, Suzanne Nossel, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Biana. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, now we turn to an extraordinary figure making an impact in the medical field. 
Dr. Catalan Carrico and her research partner were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine last month for their groundbreaking work on messenger RNA technology, a vital ingredient in COVID-19 vaccines. She joins Hari Srinivasan to discuss this milestone and her new memoir, Breaking Through, My Life in Science. Dr. Catalan Carrico, thanks so much for joining us. Um, for those of us who might have been under a rock, you got one of the greatest honors, which is the Nobel Prize in Medicine, for your work in uh, messenger RNA. And messenger RNA may have gotten into the pop culture. Unfortunately, it took us a pandemic to know what that was a little bit. But if you could describe what is it that you and Drew Weizmann did that got you this prize? So messenger RNA, as you just said, is a molecule which is present in our body. We did not invent it. Every living organism has this mRNA. What happened is we could produce this RNA, this messenger RNA, but turned out that it was not feasible for medical use because it caused inflammation. And what we did, you know, all mRNA is made from four basic uh, building blocks, and we had to change one of them. And then it uh, became the M this messenger RNA non-inflammatory. And that's what was used in both in the Moderna and the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine that modified RNA. So this was an underlying technology, if you will, that was adapted and used throughout the pandemic. And that's kind of, sure, that's an enormous win on, in, unto itself. But what is the potential with the technology that you help perfect what is messenger RNA and this type of drug delivery going to be able to do over time? Actually, this uh, messenger RNA technology and the first companies uh, was formed 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. All of them tried to develop a uh, vaccine for uh, treating uh, cancer. So that was what was how it was developed. And uh, of course, it is still uh, now that we have better data now and uh, more promising results, but it was also used for therapeutic purposes. And that was my always my interest to deliver an mRNA code for a therapeutic protein. And that would, uh, which already present in the body, but not in the right place, not enough. And actually this is how it was so used. And genetic disease is also treated right now. And uh, in clinical trial, more than 250 clinical trial is ongoing where messenger RNA is used and test out for therapies. So there will be more vaccines, uh, vaccines against viruses, bacteria, like uh, bacteria causing uh, Lyme disease. So those are also under development. And even for um, parasites like uh, malaria, clinical trials ongoing. And of course, against, you know, uh, cancer, as well as, you know, these uh, other therapeutic uh, molecules. So that's, that's, as a platform, and there will be more and more product will be developed. You have a new memoir out, uh, which is uh, fantastic. It's called uh, Breaking Through. And in it, you describe that as you were coming up as a scientist, your mother was kind of waiting for your, uh, you know, your name to be read over the radio as a winner of the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Yes, indeed. But it was like even 10, 20 years ago, you know, that she was uh, when it, coming October. She said, oh, next week, maybe maybe you will get the Nobel Prize. But, you know, at that point, I was not even a faculty position. So I was not in that. And then I told her that it won't happen. But she thought that I worked so much and that I should deserve. But I convinced her that all of the scientists are working very hard. Yeah. 
Uh, let me take our viewers back a little bit through your life and in this book. Um, it is accurate to say that you grew up in literally dirt poor surroundings. If you could tell us a bit about what your home was like in uh, post-war Hungary, um, you describe a scenario where you didn't have running water. Yes, but it was for me, it was a paradise, you know, because we had a garden, we had animals there, chicken and uh, pigs, and we had the beautiful flowers there. And of course, you know, we, everybody in the neighborhood went to, you know, to get water to the street. And that was, you know, when we talked to each other, that was the check room there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So the water pump of the village was the village chat room. <laughs> Exactly. And, and you know, in the school, more than 50 kids were in one class. And it was, you know, um, but we were quiet and we had to listen. So it was a it was a different environment in from outside. It seems like, you know, is very deprived, but it was very vivid and very uh, nurturing. And the teachers were great. And uh, yes, you know, we had um, I. Up until 10 years old, we had no television, we had no refrigerator, and many other things. But I didn't know that we don't have nobody had in the neighborhood. <laughs> yes, so, but it we, you know, the nature which uh, surrounded us uh, was uh, was interesting. And, uh, you know, getting, seeing the stork is coming back and the bird, you know, the birds. And, and I have, you know, we had chickens and we didn't purchase those, you know, we took the eggs and, the, you know, the sitting, the, a hen was sitting on it, and then we could see how the chicken is coming out from the eggs, and that's so it was great. Yeah, so uh, what is it, do you think, that inspired your kind of interest in education? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, as I mentioned, my sister was three years older, and you know what happens? When your sister is studying well, the teachers in the tiny village, you know, everybody's expecting you that you will be good as well. And so I had to be good because they expected. And, and of course, you know, I, I was challenged with a different competition we could participate. And, and when I prepared and I, I, I was winning, you know, it gave me more uh, enthusiasm to study more. And then eventually I was... In eighth grade, I was third best in the country in biology, and so that's what <laughs> how it started. You talk, you know, interestingly about some of the first times you were watching TV and kind of binge watching American or Western television. And one of the shows that keeps coming up in this memoir is Columbo, the sort of fumbling detective show uh, back in the seventies. Why? Why Colombo? What does it have to do with sort of uh, the scientific method that's helped define your life? Yes, yeah, so in the science, actually, all many things is, is uh, what happened in Colombo. You know, that you, you have an idea, create a hypothesis, and that, you know, in the Colombo at the beginning, we, we knew that who committed the crime. But, you know, that looking at the thing in science, also you kind of create that, oh, probably this is, uh, you know, how things happen. And then you look at closer and then everything fits, but there is always a little clue there, which is not fitting there. And so what they call it, you know, even for medicine is a tunnel vision. The patient comes there and you see that the sign and then you conclude what is wrong. But one thing is not fitting and that's what is important. You never ignore 
that little thing, because Colombo showed that this little thing will lead you to the right perpetrator, and in our case, the solution or answer. Uh, tell me about um, the decision that you made to try to come to the United States for academic opportunity. I mean, why, why did you make that leap in the first place um, compared to the laboratories that you were working in, in Hungary? So uh, I lost my position there. We lost uh, funding for this uh, research we were doing in, uh, in Hungary. And uh, I might say that if four times I am not terminated in my position, uh, we wouldn't talk today because uh, that was <laughs> part of it. And uh, it is very important, I emphasize that, um, you know, the decision was made and uh, I did not spend time to feeling sorry for myself, but rather focused on what I should do next. And that was the mantra uh, Janos Sheja, the Hungarian uh, uh, scientist, uh, said how you can handle stress, that you always focus on what you can change. And when I was in high school, we read his book. And then I, again, if I don't read that book, probably I'm not talking here because uh, he, we learned that how to handle the stress and, and focusing on things we can change. And, and that's why also that everything you have to look at the positivity. And when I received the other awards, I said, thank you to all of the people try to make my life miserable because they may work harder and I get improved. <laughs> you point out that really, even though you published your research with Drew Wiseman years before the pandemic, it really wasn't cited hundreds or thousands of times until the pandemic hit. That's when people really started to, right? So there might be so much other research that has been done and published that we're not really aware of or interested in until kind of a crisis moment forces us to start looking for answers. Yes, uh, you know, so that's that's how science is, you know, that uh, me in Hungary, when I started to work, my supervisor came from the industry. So it's very rare that somebody in the academia is coming from the industry. It is usually the different, the opposite direction. And then it instilled from the first day that what we are doing has to be useful for something. And uh, and that's every time, even if I was working at uh, anywhere, you know, always thinking that what it would be useful for. So, you know, that I'm doing something. And and many scientists are thinking in the same way. And uh, I mean, more and more uh, companies I uh, created in the university setting and, you know, the ideas were spent out and they test out. And uh, so... So that's uh, that's the way to get the to recognize. I I tried the same. Two thousand five, we published. Two thousand six, uh, you know, we drew Weisman, We made the company, but we couldn't get the patent for our own company. <laughs> that's maybe another one. That's what was painful for me from Penn that you know they did not give us the patent, and so our company could not be functioned. A lot of people wonder about kind of the infrastructure that's necessary to produce the type of work and the, the pace of work that you were able to produce over the years. And you attribute a lot of that to your supportive husband. And then you've also mentioned before that we need better childcare. Explain that. Exactly. Uh, high quality and before, high quality and affordable childcare is, would be very important to have here, 
I was lucky in Hungary when when my daughter was born in 1982, and three months later, I could uh, take her to the child care uh, center. You know, it was, um, you know, and I could go to work and then come back, pick her up. They gave, provided clothes, food. They, they gave them vaccine. I just have to sign. There were registered nurse was present in and then every day the pediatrician came to this uh, uh, nursery and uh, and then i could leave a message is it normal something or you know they write okay noted or you have to go to a specialist what it is normal because i this was my first child and i didn't know what is normal and not and then when i worked i i was relaxed because i know that people who who professionals they are there with my child and uh, you know, I didn't have to worry that it is an old lady, maybe she gets sick and then my child is unattended. So so that's kind of thing. And and the nominal fee. So it was just a nominal fee based on how much income I have and then we had to pay. So that, you know, I can see that here, if somebody is not wealthy enough to get a nanny or somebody, then, then they, they won't be able to uh, work uh, way uh, required by by uh, the research and uh, and that's what uh, women is doing. They give up the their uh, dream, their job, and they take a lower level of job because uh, you know everybody is looking at us, the women. And uh, of course, we also feel that okay, we have to do it. So the child is crying. I have to stay home. I have to. Uh, help and uh, the, for elderly parents also is, is all the women are doing that and and um, so I usually <laughs> tell, tell the young girls that you know find the right <laughs> husband. One of the things I wonder uh, is how did you feel about our kind of national at least in the United States conversation around science over the couple of years of the pandemic? I mean, you're right, uh, there's such a gap between what people know and what they would need to know to fully understand the vaccines and medicines that save lives. That gap right now is wide open for exploitation. We must somehow close it. I mean, because even though the vaccines were saving lives and we could see that result, there was still such a debate about whether or not the vaccines worked. Yes, so that was absolutely surprising for me because I remember when I was growing up in, in Hungary that we had a vaccine for many different things we, and we were happy that we have vaccines so it will, we will be protected. And, and uh, uh, I have to say that uh, when people don't understand something, you know, that uh, they try to come up with think or they are reading something and somebody comes up with a stupid idea and then they just believe that because you know when you know you 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 see a storm and yeah you know like even long time ago they said okay Zeus is angry and then that's why we have so that's explanation so they need explanation and and then if somebody provide them something which is stupid then they they take and start to believe that that's happening Somebody wants to put a chip on the vaccine. Somebody wants to kill us. Somebody wants to follow us. Mm. And um, and I don't know this uh, why people are so uh, sensitive for this kind of distorted view. But what I think it is maybe you need psychologists and um, different science field experts yeah. to to come up with a solution 
how we could fight, uh, you know, misinformation. So if the president of the United States comes to you and asks you for advice on um, preparing for what might be the next pandemic, I mean, what would your prescription be? Is it science education? Is it about misinformation along with the actual hard science? Where should we be investing our time and resources in, in preparing? Definitely. So that's why I, I offered my time to, you know, for education, to talk to the reporters. Together, we have to somehow simplify the language, which is the sciences. You know, we like, use terms that nobody understands, but so we have to simplify it, help uh, the public to understand better. You see, not just the mRNA, people learn to, you they learn PCR. You know, they, they can learn and then they have some idea what it could be and we have to help them. And, uh, and of course, the next uh, pandemic, we need other preparedness, you know, which... Uh, um, uh, with mRNA, you know, we can respond very quickly, but definitely um, the gap is so huge. And, uh, and, uh, and then those people who provided misinformation, they also actually profited from that. Thank you so much, doctor, for talking with us and congratulates, congratulations again on the Nobel Prize. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. What an incredible woman. And finally, lost and found. These new pictures prove that this funny-looking mammal is not extinct after all. After being rediscovered by scientists in the Cyclops Mountain of New Guinea, the Attenborough long-beaked echidna, named after the famous nature documentary maker, has the quills of a hedgehog, the snout of an anteater, and the feet of a mole. Look at that little bandit. These living fossils roamed the earth with dinosaurs 200 million years ago. Once again, a reminder that humanity is a mere speck on Earth's great lifespan, leaving the show with some news you can use. And also a quick programming note. On Saturday, you can watch the brand new Amanpour Hour from 11 a.m. on America's East Coast, 5 p.m. in Central Europe. It is a great show. We'll bring context, conversation, and analysis of our world with newsmakers, cultural icons, and the best of CNN in the field. We're also taking your questions about events shaping our future. So scan the QR code on your screen or email askamanpour at cnn.com. The Amanpour Hours airs Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central Europe time only on CNN. Well, that does it for us for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs or on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online, on our website, and all over social media. Thanks so much for watching, and goodbye from New York. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.